Thank you, uh, Steve, for leading us this far in our worship. Let us continue worshipping the Lord by opening the Scriptures and uh, turning to Colossians chapter 3. Before I say that, it's good to see you back here with us, Linda, all the way from India. Trust your time was profitable. Excellent. I'm just going to read the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. Commencing at verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised with, raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then, also, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The title of my sermon this morning is Heavenly Thinking, and um, continuation in my series. And um, what we're going to be looking at today is the matter of heavenly thinking, because we've got to think right before we can act right. In order to act right, we need to think right. And um, C.H. Spurgeon sort of cast these words long ago that um, hold something of what I want to move into today. And it says, whatever a man depends on, whatever rules his mind, whatever governs his affections, whatever is the chief object of his delight, is his God. How true is that? In other words, every person is a religious person. All believe in something. We all emulate something or someone. We all follow after something or someone. We find satisfaction in whatever. We wish, when it all comes down to it, something or someone. Even the atheist, he wishes his own intelligence or his own belief system. And all this activity begins in the mind, in the heart of a person. The mind, you know, it's an amazing thing. One of those kind of objective things that even medical science can't get into. They can tinker around with the brain and all its corpuscles and take pressure off it, etc., etc., and do a certain amount of things, but there's something subjective about the mind that you cannot put your finger on. The mind is the very seat of our affections. It's the engine room, I call it, the engine room of all our desires, our longings, our wills, our determinations, our choices, all those things and more. All of them are birthed and nurtured in the mind and, and they make us all out to be who we really are. So from the mind to heart, when I say mind and heart, more than often in the, in the scriptures when it speaks of heart, it's synonymous with the mind, and when it speaks of the mind, it's synonymous with the heart, on most occasions. And, and so out of the mind, out of the heart, flow all the issues of life. Now Jesus kind of touched on this when he said, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, there you are, you've got that, 
That's what Jesus was touching on. From his innermost being, the mind, the heart, that faculty, that all these things are, are worked out. From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. John chapter 7, verse 38. You see, the mind is such that its function is always operative. It's never in neutral. Mind you, we might joke about that when we think about people who don't think before they act. We do that sometimes, right? We might even say, you know, that time you put your brain into gear or something like that. But it's, it's never neutral. It, the mind never believes in nothing. It is, it is never ever indifferent about everything. Every human mind is wired to love, to rejoice, to delight, to depend on, uh, it's to believe, to choose, to consider, to imagine. We're all wired for those functions to take place in our minds and our hearts. As we think about our mind, in its fallen state, because our mind, our heart is fallen, right? Because when Adam sinned, all man fell. But our mind, our heart still operates in a way that in some areas allows us to be obedient functionally to God. It allows us and causes us to to function and to follow after what we say a creational mandate. God's creational mandate, which was what? To develop his creation and to reproduce after our kind. And when we think about the world, we think about, yeah, it has kind of done that. We have developed what God put in place. We have cultivated what God put in place. Mankind has done that, even in a swollen state. And we certainly have reproduced after our own kind, right? Laurie's got three kids, I've had five. Some of you have had more, less, whatever. We reproduce. We know how to do that. And so we follow the creational mandate. And in all those two things, all these kind of mind works happen to love, to rejoice, to depend, to look to, etc. The mind... It's an amazing thing because it can drive us positively or negatively through life. It can. I'm sure you've been with some people who are so negative, you don't want to be around them, right? Everything is woe as me. Don't name them, just think about it. Then there are others with such a positive attitude, you gravitate toward them. You love to hang out with those people with a positive attitude. It, it, it's so engaging and it's, it's infectious. The mind. We also know that the mind is so powerful that it can breathe and produce destructive or beneficial consequences in our lives. Generally, it's medically accepted. In certain cases, a patient's mental attitude, and the doctors and the physicians in our congregation can correct me if I'm wrong, it's generally accepted that a patient's mental attitude can make a huge difference in the speed and likelihood of their recovery. Is that right, Linda? Okay, everyone knows that, yeah. It can. Another example, top-class athletes, or what? If you want to deal with top-class athletes, you're not a negative person, that's for sure. A top-class athlete are usually the ones who are more focused and more determined and are more likely to come out those who are winners. So folks, there's a whole lot of truth in the words you can do it if you put your mind on it. I wish I had heeded those words when I was at school and younger for my parents. You can do it if you put your mind on it. 
And so all this mind work is part of who we are as God's created beings. But as I said before, without a fellow to sin, mankind since has inherited Adam's fallenness and every single person needs a new heart or a new mind in order to please God and to worship Him. You cannot please God and worship Him without a new heart or a new mind. It's impossible. We touched on this last week. We need to be, and the scripture and the scriptures is, we need to be born again. We need to pass through the hands of the Creator a second time, so to speak. Because our inherited and personal sin caused us to be so spiritually dead to God and awaiting His judgment. That's why we need to be born again. As we saw last time in chapter 2, all those who have come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance toward God were made alive. We're made alive, right? We're made alive. And also we looked at, we've been forgiven. So the true Christian is one who has been made alive by God and has been forgiven. And we looked at the fact that we're no longer condemned. Why? Because that certificate, that decree of sin that was against us was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And we are forever free. What an awesome truth that is. That's one of those 10,000 blessings, see? And so what does that make us? A believer is now who is a new creature in Christ. You read that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We are new people. We have been those who are raised up with Christ, as we have in verse 1 of this chapter of our text today. We've been buried with Him and we've been raised up with Him, which we symbolise in our baptism, by the way. Water baptism. Why? It's because we've been given new hearts. New hearts. New minds that are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to function in God-pleasing ways. Folks, in order to live a changed life for Jesus Christ, the work of Christ on the cross is absolutely foundational. And we must believe and accept in Him, accept Him as our Saviour. But also essential, also essential, is that our changed and new hearts or new minds within drive and produce lives and behaviour without. God has done the work within, okay? And now we know that we're not perfect, we still have this fallen flesh that I mentioned before needs to be transformed and, and um, we still have the propensity to sin and to yield it to the, to the flesh and to sin that invades us from without. We still have that propensity. And so we've got some discipline here to do. We've got some discipline and work to do. And so we need to conform to what the Lord has done within so that we can behave properly without. You know, Solomon wrote wisely once in Proverbs 4.23, Keep your mind with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. You see, the mind is the seedbed of all our life's actions. So how important it is to behave right and to think right. Okay? It's important that we behave right, but unless our thinking is right, we'll never behave right. So let's ask this morning, why, what and how questions of heavenly thinking? This brings to our first point. Why should our minds be engaged in heavenly things? 
The Apostle Paul here in this letter anticipates this kind of question, I believe, as he moves from the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of our salvation, and uh, which we touched on briefly last time, and, and he uses this well-known precursor. Some will have therefore there, but it's also backed up by the word since. Uh, probably a better translation is since you have been raised with Christ. He does that to briefly remind us of all what he said and the truth of what he said of, uh, in, in prior verses. And before moving on to the series of commands about changed living, which we'll get into in coming weeks. He said, therefore, or, or since you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above. And then he moves on and says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. And so what Paul does here, he gives us three reasons why our minds should be engaged in heavenly things. Why this command needs to be obeyed. And the first reason is, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We see this in verse 3. In other words, because we have died to the world system. And how have we done that? We have died to the world system through our faith union in Christ. And because of that, our life is now bound up in the life of Jesus Christ. You need to notice the past tense action of these, of these words here. And um, what that makes us, we are now in the present, new creation. Something's happened in the past and we're now new creations in Christ, as we have mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We once were dead in sin, but now have been made alive, as we mentioned last week. So we're not only delivered from spiritual death and eternal judgment, we'll be delivered from that, we're also delivered from trying to save ourselves. And there's millions out there trying to save themselves by doing whatever they feel that they need to do. And um, we're delivered from that. And we're also freely given a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And that was all something of the past. It's happened. And it brings us into the present tense of who we really are in Christ. So as we think about that, we must understand that Christianity, true Christianity, is not about some religious practice or religious ceremony. True Christianity is about a personal relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. We became alive to God and now are intimately bound with Him. We are one with Christ, one with the Saviour. So that's a good reason um, why we should think heavenward. A second reason why we, our minds need to be engaged in heavenly things is because where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now this may seem a little obscure here as we read the text, but the word seated, the word seated speaks of finality. Or as we might say in our local colloquialism, a job done and dusted. You see, in regards to Christ's work and now being seated at the right hand of God, it reminds us of the final victory he won on our behalf at the cross. In other words, our minds should be engaged in heavenly things because of the victory our Lord Jesus has won and completed for us. How true it is 
The more our hearts and minds are engaged with Him and His finished work, the more the words of, say, Romans 8, 28 are precious to us. It says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And so Christ being seated at the right hand of God also reminds us that nothing shall separate us from the love of God. The saving work has been finished. So that no man can pluck them, you, me, out of the Father's hand. The Lord Jesus has overpowered all his foes and, and as a result all our guiltiness is gone all our condemnation is gone because our sin has been paid for and forgiven. He is now seated, folks. He's seated. Praise the Lord, right? Amen. Thirdly, our minds should be engaged with heaven because where Christ is, we shall one day be revealed with him. You know, the old hymn says it right. This world is not our home, we're just passing through. Our final destination is heaven, folks. It is, it really is. I don't know all the ins and outs of heaven. Actually, we're not told a whole lot about heaven, but it's going to be grand there. At our prayer meeting here on Wednesday night, some of us read chapters 4 and 5 together of Revelation, and we were caught up into heaven, and we're able to praise God because of that. Language is there that we really can't comprehend. But it's going to be wonderful because the Lord is there. And so we need to prepare for that great celestial destiny as God has instructed us to prepare. But as I think about that, it's amazing, isn't it? How we so easily forget or ignore or treat with indifference this future reality, even as believers. We get so sidetracked with the temporal that we lose sight of the eternal. God willing, Donna and I are going to New Zealand next month. And, um, and the planning and the preparation is well underway in order for us to arrive and enjoy. Yeah, and, and it's entailed a certain amount of, of um, mental focus on my part goal setting on both our parts, etc. But that's what you do when you have hollow down the horizon, right? You set goals, and you plan, you strategize, and, and, and you focus your mind on the holiday, its destination, and you ponder the joys and anticipate the good times. That's what you do when you want to go on holiday, right? As God's people, we also need to keep our eternal destiny in mind. We need to remember where we're going so we don't get lost on the way. This demands that we set our hearts and our minds on things above and not be sidetracked by worldly and temporary details. But there's a question here. What is heavenly thinking? What is heavenly thinking? What does setting our minds on things above really mean? I always like to understand what something is by trying to understand what that something is not. Since setting our heart, our minds on things above, is, it's, 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 it's not about religion. 
It's not about religion. It's not about church. It's not the church attendance or, or, or some spiritual personal analysis that we might enter into. It's not about those things. You know, you can go to theological school, you can be knowledgeable about theology and doctrine, and you can be a great debater about that, and, and yet completely be divorced from heavenly thinking. Heavenly thinking is also not about church practice and church ministry or even church attendance, might I say, even though those things are necessary and will be what a believer wants to do. You can be so heavily involved in ministry, you can set up church programs, you can even go to all the meetings and still miss out on heavenly thinking. It's not about taking time to look within in order to evaluate and improve your, your sense of spiritual well-being, or even cultivating a deeper sense of God's presence. It's not about that. That's purely inward and self-focused thinking and not focusing on things above. So what is heavenly thinking? What is it? It's about being in love with Christ. You got that? Being in love with Christ. Now many of you know here, what it's like to be a mother. Right? Steve's mom. Leaders. You know about that. Especially when that young love began to flourish and bloom in your single days towards your spouse. And I hope it's still blooming by those, for those who are married here. And, and for those who are put in the wannabe status of a love, and we have a few here. Let me tell you something of what it is to find the human love of your life. Velma's probably going to blush you. I thought you were going to be under the summer school room, but no. Let me tell you something of what it's like. Jordan and Jenna will really know what this is about. You believe me? Or if it doesn't sort of come so I find it close to them, I'm going to give them marriage counseling soon and I'll be a bit concerned, but I'm sure it will be something like this. Firstly, it's amazing, it's amazing how so much of your time is occupied, how so much of your mind is occupied with the one who has captured and flipped your heart upside down. Your mind constantly drifts and settle on your newfound love. When you have free time, your thoughts will drift in their direction. It does, it really does. And when you lay in bed at night, you fall asleep thinking about them. Now this is not mushy, girly stuff. This is what happens to blokes as well, all of us, right? Any spare time you might have, you only wish you could spend it with your newfound love. And when you are together, the hours go so fast, they seem like minutes. And as you grow deeper in love, I use the word grow, I don't use the word fall, I don't believe in falling, it's growing. You long for the day when your love will blossom into marriage so that you can be with your newfound love forever. Is that how it is? I see any nods? Am I off on another planet here? Yeah, yeah, look at that chin up, right, yeah. Come on, you older guys, you can remember way back when that, yeah, yeah, right. Your, your, your mind all of a sudden receives this, this new default, this, this order where your newfound love is everything. 
Well, heavenly thinking is much the same as that, folks. It's much the same as that. It's having a love relationship with Jesus Christ that causes us to think about the beautiness and loveliness of Jesus Christ all the time. In fact, heavenly thinking is such that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that should ever interrupt, interfere, cloud out, ignore, and not take into account the supreme love of our life with Jesus Christ. Heavenly thinking is Christ-centered thinking. Being in love with Jesus will have us thinking about his loveliness, his power, his mercy, his praise, his wisdom, his promise, his words, etc., etc., etc. Do you love like this? Nothing in our lives should be entered into without first considering the love of our lives. Jesus Christ and his goals and his desires for us. Nothing. I like what John MacArthur says in his commentary, in Colossians' commentary on this. And this is what he says. The believer's whole disposition should orient itself toward heaven, just as a compass needle orients itself toward the north. To be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there and his purposes, plans, provisions and power. It is also to view the things people and events of this world through his eyes and with an eternal perspective. It is to allow our preoccupation with heaven to govern our earthly response. End quote. Is that how it is, folks? Is that how it is? Because I look at this and I say, if that's the measure of heavenly thinking, and I know it is, because I read this in the Word, I know it is, I have to confess that I, I fail far too often and I'm sure you all do too. Why is that? Why do we so often, too often, fail in setting our minds on things above? As we ought, and as we really want to within, and as we are obligated to. Why is it? The answer is simple. We can be so bound up with earthly things that they demand all our time, our concerns and our energy. Our focus, rather than being Christ-centered, it is all too often being hijacked by our next appointment, our next purchase, our next career, or whatever it might be, our retirement fund, our bank account, or even our families at times. All this and more too often stalls Christ-centered thinking in its tracks. You, like me, find it far too easy to go down this road, right? Especially in this materialistic age. But the Lord said, this is what he said, you shall love, and listen to this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Three kind of things there emphasize one important truth. This is what love is, heart, soul and mind. We so easily get this heavenly thinking back to front. Now don't get me wrong on this. Don't get me wrong on this. I'm not meaning that you're only to ever concentrate on Christ, to forget about everything else. No, no, no. But not to be like the 
Monks of past era who used to go and find a cave somewhere so they could block everything out of the world and concentrate solely on holy things. No, no, no. We must concentrate on what we are doing in the here and now. For example, we should be thinking drivers when we're on the road behind a wheel, right? And we should pay attention to our studies and at work. And we should listen and give attention to those who are speaking to us. Absolutely. But all this, all this should be done from a perspective where Christ is absolutely central. So that all our actions in life, yes, even our driving and even our studies, and even bringing up our families, all our actions in life are adjusted accordingly. Why? Because Christ is central. He's the plumb line, and everything should be brought into line with him. That's what heavenly thinking is, folks. That's what it is. But how do we get to thinking like that? That's the question. How do we get to thinking like that? How do we develop a heavenly thinking pattern? We must understand that this kind of thinking just does not turn itself on, right? It doesn't turn itself on by itself. You see, the only kind of thinking that goes on auto too often is things like fret and despair and worry and anguish. You know those things that crop up too many times and uh, dominate our thinking. Your heavenly thinking is an action that, that involves our own volition, that's our own choice and, and determination and, and, and choice of direction, our own volition, which actively and constantly turns our thoughts heavenward. So when disaster comes into your life, what do you do? You go, well, it's me. Ideally, this is what you should do as a Christian. You turn to the Lord. Knowing that He is sovereign and in charge of all things and in control, even though you have no clue to what's happening in your life, you turn to Him. The tense of keep seeking in our text, the tense of that word, indicates that this is an ongoing mind work, right? It's an ongoing mind work. That we as believers need to be constantly at work with it. So it's not as if, okay, I've sought the Lord and I'm right for this next week. No, 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 no. It's an ongoing mind work, 24-7. To be heavenly minded, we must deliberately turn God's way first. Read Psalm 119. I don't ask you to read all of one go, it's a long chapter. Read it in chunks. Always remember one of my mentor brothers many, many years ago. He read Psalm 119. And he reread it. And for years and years and years, every day, he read part of Psalm 119. He just kept flicking it over and over and over. You want to know what it's like to turn to God first. You want to read 100 Psalm 119. Where it exalts God, exalts His Word, exalts His commandments, exalts the, the, the person of God. So whenever you feel despair, whenever you feel worry, fear, loneliness, lust, anger, jealousy, whenever you feel those things begin to rise, you need to kill them in their tracks. By how? Thinking on things of God. And if it fills your mind with the Word of God, that will become easier to do. You see, relying on automatic feelings, auto-feelings, drives us away from God, not to them. You need to learn to look up when those sinful thoughts arise in our minds. Thoughts about Christ, you know what they do? Thoughts about Christ, they knock them for dead. 
Maybe you see something that you lustfully want. Every time you're tempted to do something dodgy. Every time you're tempted to compromise your faith. Or maybe every time you're tempted to do nothing when you know you should be doing something. Every time you're tempted to stay where you're at and be indifferent. Every time you're tempted to choose the pleasures of this world, thinking that in them you will find satisfaction and contentment and security and peace. Every time you feel the pressure to conform to worldly standards in order to be accepted and successful. Every time, folks, every time, every time, we must turn our minds to Christ. And remember that if we yield to the lust and the desires of those auto-fleshly feelings, we'll be offending the one who loves us with an everlasting love. The Lord's instruction must be kept close in conjunction with this, close to our hearts, that he gives in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19 and 21. This is what he said. Do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break and in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If our greatest desires is for worldly things, that's where our heart will be. If our greatest desires are for the things of heaven and for Christ, that's where our heart will be also. We must make time to look up, folks. We must. The way to do this is to make time to read the Scriptures. Okay? As I mentioned before. You know, I do this every morning. Now, this may not be the best time to suit you and your schedule, as I know some of you get up super, super early. But every day should be a day where we make time to read and meditate on God's Word. Whether it's a chapter, whether it's two verses, one verse, or whatever. We should make time. And, and, and as we read, read with a desire to understand what God is saying. Okay? That must be the case. Never ever, never ever read Scripture in order to meet a Bible reading schedule. You get the drift? Because it soon will become, believe you me, it, they can be helpful. But if you're reading the scriptures just to meet a Bible reading schedule, sooner or later, and probably sooner than later, it'll become boring, it'll become dry, and it'll become rank legalistic. And what I mean by that, you'll be reading the Bible in the end if you're going to read just to meet a reading schedule in order to earn brownie points from God. Okay, Lord, I'll please do my reading of words, so now you'd be good to me. We fall into that default mode too often, using Bible reading schedules. But don't get me wrong, they can be helpful. They can be helpful, but you've got to watch it. So read to understand. You know, someone rightly said that the scriptures are God's thoughts for us. In other words, for you to develop heavenly thinking, God through his word and the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit will put into your mind his mind. Now how awesome is that? You want to know the mind of God? You want to be in sync with God's thinking? You've got to read his word. Relying on personal experience or some vision of the night or whatever or even what someone else says, even what I say from this pulpit, just relying wholly on that is a dangerously poor substitute for setting your mind on things about it. 
We must read God's manual so that his thoughts become our thoughts. Developing heavenly thinking will also demand that we pray, of course. This is real basic stuff here, mate. How often we need basic stuff, right? It will demand that we pray. You know, when you love someone, you communicate with them, right? That's probably one of the things that sort of gradually drips off over the years. We become too familiar with one another as human beings even. And one of the first things that slips out the door is communication. It can be. So when you love someone, you communicate with them. And, and that's exactly how it's with the Lord. To develop heavenly thinking, we must teach ourselves to pray in a communicable way. What I mean by that, this kind of praying is it's not like, here Lord, here's my grocery list for the day or for the week. This is what I want or I might even need. We need to pray we need to pray that in a way that submits our life to his approval and, and, and that prayer will be that what seeks his gain to seeks to, to gain his perspective on our on our living. In other words, we want to live through the Lord's eyes. That's what we want to do. And our prayer should be in line with that. This is has a similar idea of praying without ceasing that the Apostle Paul commanded the Thessalonian believers to be involved in. Which is, has behind it a whole attitude of prayer. A prayer communication at all times takes place. What if you do that? Everything you do, every time something crops up, you talk to the Lord. Talk to the Lord. Your mind just gravitates toward heaven. There are many additional ways to develop heavenly thinking, and I've just got a couple in closing, John of Dare. You stop and ponder God's awesome greatness. As I mentioned, some of us did that as we read the scriptures here on Wednesday night. Revelation 4 and 5. And we were caught up, as it were, into heaven, as it were, again, and could only bow and worship to God. Next time you behold something of God's creation, whether it be the sunset or the sunrise or the beautiful coloured mountains and the hues of, of God's creatorial hand, praise Him, bless Him, give thanks to God. Another one is to take stock of the people that God has placed around you and, and consider them, consider those people, whether they be sinners or whether they be saints, consider those people from God's perspective. You got that? Consider them from God's perspective. What a wonderful thing to have brothers and sisters in the Lord of like-minded faith where we can praise God together and we will spend eternity together. That's an awesome truth. And we can praise God for that. But what an awesome thing when God brings people into our space who are still outside of Christ because in the providence of God He has given you the opportunity to minister grace to them, God's grace. Consider people from God's perspective. Heavenly thinking is learning to see all and do all with the perspective of eternity and as someone said, stamp on our eyeballs. Hear that? It is something we can learn and need to do. It's something we can help each other do. And because of the change that God has begun in us, 
And that's salvation. We need to develop heavenly thinking in order to live changed lives without. Thank you for your kind attention on this hot day. I'll go and have a back to see